Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. After stocks rebounded worldwide after a winning week on Wall Street, worries now that big banks will fall short on investment banking and trading revenue. NATO comes off a successful summit during which Sweden was granted admission to the Atlantic Alliance to become its 32nd member and included a deal that could see F-16 fighters for Turkey and Greece. A bad week for Ben Wallace as one of Britain's most successful defense secretaries in many years made clear he's stepping down at the upcoming cabinet reshuffle within days and that he is leaving politics after his district uh, is eliminated later this year. But a great week for French defense as the Indian Navy orders more Rafale fighters and three more Scorpion submarines. Joining us today, as they do every week, to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy. Uh, and I should note the three of us uh, are here together in Gloucestershire, uh, after spending uh, a couple of very enjoyable days, or at least an enjoyable day, I should say, at the Royal International Air uh, Tattoo, where Ron, Sash, and I were together. Richard, I'm sorry you couldn't join us. You were in sunny Indonesia. Everybody, welcome to the program. It's great to be here, Vago. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Vago. It's great to be here. Really good to see uh, you and Ron and Richard next year. Yes, indeed. Next year, I would point out the many similarities between northern Bali and Gloucestershire, but I, none come to mind right now. Maybe equal amount of moisture, just in different ways. Uh, Ron, why don't you uh, start us off uh, on uh, the week? Um, you know, We talked about some of the broader economic dynamics last week. It looks like the uh, market had a pretty good week. How did the group perform against the broader market? Yeah, the S&P was up uh, a little over 2%, 2 percent um, of the big big large cap names we follow. Uh, Lockheed Martin did the best. It was up almost a percent. Uh, Boeing was essentially flat. General Dynamics was essentially flat. Northrop was essentially flat. Raytheon Technologies was down a percent and a half, so it was it was the underperformer. Um, GE Aerospace was essentially flat. So the group underperformed the market uh, on the week pretty meaningfully. Both WTI, WTI and Brent crude were essentially flat on the week. The 10-year yield was actually down a little bit. I think that was on some of the economic news. The 10-year yield was uh, just a bit below four. Um, uh, the VIX index, you know, our, our favorite measurement of like market fear, it was down on the week. And just an interesting little tidbit, if you look at the SPAC index, the index that measures these special purpose in, in, uh, investment companies, um, since the beginning of May, it's up almost 12%. So I think that's a broader measure of less risk aversion in the market um, since early May. And I think that's what we're, 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 we're broadly seeing. Um, however, relative to that, it, it does seem like the aerospace and defense group, both sides, have um, underperformed. Uh, Sash, uh, give us your sense uh, on uh, European markets and what the big drivers were, because uh, Europe saw a bounce from the United States as well. Talk to us a little bit about the dynamics going on uh, in the city and elsewhere. Yeah, um, it was a pretty good week for the uh, sector in Europe, actually. Um, Defence was best, um, but you know, as always, there are the, uh, you know there are some special uh, issues uh, relating to that. But you know, the, the sector overall was um, up about turn a turn a bit percent. The civil stocks, um, you know, Airbus. Uh, Rolls-Royce and so forth, overall uh, flat. But the defence stocks are up 3%. And within that, 
three um, stock performances uh, really stood out. Babcock um, was up eleven uh, percent. I think largely because the company of um, the company have had uh, accounting problems several years back. They had to change auditors, and the new auditors were taking forever to actually audit or, uh, audit the books. Um, and uh, they delayed their results and delayed their results, and they've announced now they're going to announce them this week. Um, and the market just took that very positively. You know, if, if they're going to do that, they're probably going to be no worse. You know, no worse than okay. Um, so big sigh of relief there. Probably more fundamentally, um, Hensolt up six percent. Uh, Leonardo up 6%. Those two are increasingly moving in lockstep because Leonardo has this 25% strategic shareholding uh, in Hensolt. And what we're seeing coming out of Germany is the start of a, a stream of orders associated with these the special defence funds. Um, the uh, Bundestag Budget Committee is signing off. They have signed off every order over 25 million euros. That's not a system that was ever designed for a war situation like this. Uh, but that, that's how they do it. Um, and we, you know, we're starting to get this flow of orders. Uh, there were some sh uh, sh the Chinooks um, and so forth. And then Rheinmetall up four percent. They got an enormous uh, increase in uh, their existing order for tank ammunition. Uh, Germany is now buying four billion euros of 120 millimeter tank ammunition. Uh, that's serious restocking. Um, you know, they've only got 300 plus tanks. So, uh, you know, work that out. Uh, it's about a thousand rounds of tank. That's a lot of uh, a lot of war stocks and a lot of training. Some of that, I'm sure, is going to make its way to Ukraine as well. So, you know, the defence stocks were the standouts this week. And the, you know, the individual bits of news flow just, uh, just really helped that part of the sector. Um, and um, how did the NATO summit uh, play into that? And Richard, I want to get your sense uh, on uh, the potential for Turkish and Greek uh, F-16s, uh, obviously a deal to convince Ankara to go for the deal. Uh, and then there, you know, uh, Senator Menendez of New Jersey is one of those people who always uh, tries to look out for Greece's interests uh, as well and has been a, a member who's been somewhat critical of Turkey over the years. Um, Sash, how did, how did, you know, sentiment from uh, the NATO Vilnius summit um, shape investors' thinking? I think that, look, it, it was broadly positive. I mean, investors tend to be very um, mule-headed about, because effectively this is one step removed from, from direct news about the war in Ukraine. And you remember, we've discussed this a lot of times. When the war is going well for Ukraine, investors mark defense stocks down because they say, well, it's going to be over soon. And then, you know, there'll be no more investments. I think we all know on this podcast that is just wrong. But you, I'm, I'm always astonished how consistent a, a stock market trade that is. And paradoxically, if Ukraine is doing badly in terms of the war, um, uh, defense stocks tend to get marked up because the expectation is that the war's going to go on for longer. There's going to be more spending by NATO. Um, I would think that, I mean, last week, actually, I don't think it had as big an effect on the stocks as the individual bits of news, particularly this um, enormous logjam of German budgetary decisions, which is now just starting to break. Richard, um, what were your takeaways from uh, the summit and what is the impact, right? Walk us through the dimensions of how many F-16s we're talking about, um, how that changes the dynamic and what it means for Lockheed. Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the more interesting aspects that came out of the whole thing is that on the positive side, there's the potential for kind of a, a grand bargain, a big deal that makes everybody more or less happy um, and uh, actually is really good from a commercial standpoint for the F-16. Um, the bad news is a lot of moving pieces need to fall in place to sort of make it happen. Obviously, you know, the grand bargain would look something like Sweden is allowed into NATO 
Turkey drops its objections. Uh, the U.S. agrees to sell uh, F-16s and upgrade kits for Turkey's existing uh, F-16s, um, maybe in exchange, in addition for the, to that, for some kind of recognition to you know, of, of, of Greece's territorial issues or some kind of agreement over that whole situation between the two NATO partners. And then on top of that, um, you know, perhaps there's even a, a tacit acceptance of Greece's uh, desire for F-35s. So basically, everyone's happy, especially the U.S. defense industry, but, you know, grand diplomacy. A lot has to happen. You know, on the positive side, I think the U.S. has a bit more leverage here. You know, you look at the strategic situation in the eastern Mediterranean. Turkey is the only country without a path to getting a modern fighter with an AESA radar. Bizarrely enough, they haven't taken a new fighter jet in about 25 years or more. That's pretty extraordinary. Uh, they need to do something. Their own indigenous fighter, the, the Khan, if, you know, first of all, it needs a lot of imported technologies, including probably AESA radar technology. Um, it certainly won't produce anything useful till the second half of the 2030s at the very best. So they need to do something. F-16s would be the easiest answer, especially since if they could take their large fleet of 200 plus existing F-16s and upgrade them to Block 70 standard. That would give them exactly the air power that uh, you'd think they need at this point, rather than having this, this well, <laughs> obsolete force. But again, a lot has to happen to make this happy ending happen. Uh, and um, obviously, right, uh, Turkey was uh, a longtime F-35 partner, got bounced from the program after deciding to buy Russian air defenses, which then opened the door for uh, Germany's Rheinmetall to have a role on the program that we discussed uh, a week or so ago. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of interesting. You look at what they've created in country to try to build their own fighter jet. It's really just the start compared to what needs to happen. So I think they're kind of kidding themselves and any dispassionate view of the situation regarding aerospace technology in Turkey would lead them to make this, you know, deal. Um, were any of the other war planning elements uh, of this uh, interesting, right? I mean, this was bringing back a lot of um, Cold War uh, planning assumptions, right? I mean, some degree of uh, specialization on what each country is going to do if the bubble goes up. Uh, you know, Britain talking about 2.5% uh, of GDP uh, spending. Almost everybody's suggesting there's going also uh, going to be more money. And I kind of want to go around the horn how everybody sort of in interprets that, right? I mean, it's always obviously a positive sign. But from your, you know, did anything stand out to you? You know, from my standpoint, it'd be great to hear Sash's comments on this in particular. Uh, but, you know, from my standpoint, the move away from being able to hit back and more just a desire to defend every inch of turf, to be able to fight the enemy, presumably Russia, in the event of a territorial incursion in, you know, that uh, that 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 highway to uh, to, um, you know, that that part, that little the Kaliningrad uh, enclave that they've got and whatever else, all these areas that are perceived of as vulnerable, particularly between the Baltics and Poland. The idea of reinforcing that area and being, making it very clear that there would be a forward defense, that to me was an interesting posture change. Um, Ron, your sentiment, and then uh, Sash want to get your take. Go ahead, Ron. Yeah, I don't have anything to, to add to that. Would, would really like to hear what Sash has to say. I, I agree. I think uh, the fact that NATO is, is starting to do proper large-scale integrated planning and doing it in a very, very public way as well. I mean, hey, that's that's a fundamental part of conventional deterrence. 
Um, but it also suggests that NATO is has be, is becoming a, a far more serious um, op, operational, certainly strategic operational um, alliance. And probably it's been for uh, for a while because there's a genuine threat uh, out there, which we hadn't which we hadn't had for 25 years. Um, so I mean, to remind some of our listeners, I mean, there, there are now going to be specific plans for north, centre, south uh, NATO. North is Scandinavia, the high north center is um, Poland, Baltic states, Romania, um, and you know, although nobody was prepared to say it at the time, you, uh, Ukraine, and then south is round uh, is round to Turkey. Uh, that's very very sensible stuff. The um, increased specialization, I think, is actually very very positive for industry, um, and hence our uh, you know the companies that we tend to an- analyze. And here's why: um, historically, every NATO uh, armed force more or less bought what they wanted and although there were some and have been some very successful uh, examples of pooling and cooperation the, uh, the original f-16 users group and before that the f-104 users group and now the f-35 users group you know those have been very successful but for, for every one of those there has been uh, a situation where each country has a different armored reconnaissance vehicle or um uh you know uh, different small arms or something like that and uh it, so what you had were beautifully crafted individual countries where interoperability was hard. Once you start getting standard uh, or you know pooling and focus at a an alliance level on key capabilities, and you know one of the one of the early ways this was done was actually by giving some of the nations that had come out of the Warsaw Pact um, priority for things like bridging because the Warsaw Pact was really good at bridging. So, you know, let's get the Czechs to be the bridging specialists for, uh, central Europe, do that more. And what you get are much more focused purchases of equipment, admittedly over an equipment generation. Um, and, uh, that I think means that you get a bigger, a better scale in terms of the industrial production than having very, very short production runs for individual countries. And, um, uh, you know, and then the countries go off and, uh, and, and nothing more, more gets done. So I'm, I'm hugely in favour of this. I think it's, a, it's very interesting. I think it will have the biggest effect in uh, logistics, land forces, um, and probably ultimately missile systems. I do wonder whether the European Sky Shield initiative that Germany has set up, which is phenomenally controversial, particularly in France, but I wonder if that will um, come down to almost a de facto NATO standard for uh, it, certainly air defence integration, um, uh, and then, uh, you know, sort of mix and match on individual radars and, and missile systems. I still think all of that would give better procurement and a much better focus than we've had you know, in the last half century or so. So, I'm, um, you know, that, that, that was actually, that's not something that I think investors looked at last week, but that would be my, my most positive takeaway on an industrial basis from the summit. Um, I, I want to uh, continue uh, the discussion and also get your take on uh, Ben Wallace uh, in a moment. But a quick word from our sponsors. HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. Sash, um, you know, we there were ex- uh, suspicions that Ben Wallace was uh, going to be uh, stepping down as uh, defense secretary. It was a, a topic earlier this week in London uh, in some of my meetings, especially with uh, lawmakers where the topic came up. Um, he's been uh, districted out, right? The, the boundaries of his constituency haven't changed and actually a lot of his constituency has just disappeared. Um, so he told the Sunday Times uh, today 
uh, or at least in a story that ran today, he is leaving politics, uh, is not going to stand in another uh, constituency. Um, he was a successful defense secretary. His economist comments uh, that he wasn't going to make NATO secretary general struck an odd tone. Obviously, Stoltenberg has, is going to be extended. Um, and then, you know, there was that little flap that happened over uh, his comments, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, construed as Ukraine should be more grateful and we're not an Amazon uh, for 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 weapons. Um, just quickly, what does this departure mean? Because he was really a driving engine uh, as part of the UK government that has led along with the United States, or I should say in close coordination with the United States to steadily sort of get more capability into Ukrainian hands. What does all of this mean? And what does it mean for UK defense and who succeeds him? I think it's a great shame for UK defense because he was one of the few defense ministers that I can remember who was genuinely interested in the in the job came into the job with some real domain knowledge and he came into the job you know having worked in the defense industry so he it wasn't and he'd also been a, he was also a, a, a junior officer uh in in the army but that was some time back and frankly i don't think that qualifies you to be to be um defense secretary but it but working in industry and having an understanding of how industry works um you know and therefore the the necessity for industrial strategy of some sort made him a, a very, very uh, good, very interesting defence secretary at, at some it's needed. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think we will get a defence secretary of comparable uh, standard to replace him. Just to, rem you know, to remind um, listeners, uh, the UK's got a general election, most likely within the next 12 months. Um, so whoever gets the job now is a standard. You know, they're literally there to um, uh, keep the place sort of ticking over, but they won't have the ability to move and shake in the way that Ben Wallace did. You know, since we're writing his political epitaph, undoubtedly the greatest effect he had um, was being defence secretary at the time of the run-up to the uh, start of the war in Ukraine, and then you know during the first couple of months where he was, I, I think he deserves a lot of credit for um, really pushing the supply of huge amounts of weapons to Ukraine. Um, and in the case of the UK, what, he was prepared to take risk in terms of UK war stocks to make sure that Ukrainians got what they wanted. That was not something that some other countries were prepared to do so early on. Um, I think that's massively to his credit. But I agree with you. I think, you know, the, the comments this week about, um, uh, you know, Ukraine needs to share a bit more uh, gratitude and so forth. It, it was small, small minded. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's a great shame when you see a, a, a politician sort of blot there. Uh, their copybook and their their reputation with rather ill-considered comments uh, at the absolute end of their careers. You know, I uh, neglected uh, to ask uh, you, Ron, and, and Richard, for your take on sort of like what NATO buys and what comes out of the summit, you know, meaningly, meaningfully in the impact, uh, you know, beyond the F-16, which is what a lot of folks are focusing on. Ron, you know, sort of your sense on that? Yeah, I mean, clearly NATO's been buying F-35s, right? Um and you know, we might expect some more of that, but but broadly, uh, if if NATO continues to increase defense spending and uh, all our major contributor countries get to at least two percent of GDP, if not a little bit more, that's probably an incremental one hundred and fifty billion dollars of spending that the European industrial base can't support. Um, so I don't know, call it maybe a third of that would flow back to U.S. contractors uh, somehow or another. The U.S. contractors, as you well know, are are also dealing with their own capacity constraints. Uh, and we're seeing that kind of everywhere from 
you know, missiles to, to munitions, submarines for that matter. Um, but uh, it, when you look at, say, an additional $50 billion on top of the procurement budgets in the United States, I mean, that, that's not a, a small sum of money. Richard? Yeah, I think there are two areas of uh, concern, interest, what have you. Um, you know, one is uh, will NATO divert funding away from off-the-shelf purchases to bolster local industry? And as Ron says, they're still prioritizing F-35s rather than local uh, products, but, you know, no guarantee that won't change. You know, it's it's sort of a, a, a quirk, you know, I mean, the world's combat aircraft lines are humming and exports are humming, but, you know, Germany hasn't announced anything different uh, in terms of plans to buy more A400Ms. Nobody has announced uh, any plans to buy more A400Ms. Uh, Deso, his latest defense plans, or Europe, France's latest defense plans actually has fewer Deso Rafales in it. Uh, so clearly it's still off the shelf rather than an emphasis on local industry. Next question is, will they decide to harmonize as they have in the past or as they've occasionally done in the past, rather than prioritizing their own levels of sovereignty and in, in everything? And and certainly in terms of conversation uh, at the at the conference, there was a, a greater emphasis on harmonization, but there always is, isn't there? So we'll have to actually see whether they can agree to, you know, pool resources rather than bolstering everything that they do locally. Sash? To add a sort of counterpoint to that, and I mean, you know, it's come back to uh, where three of us are, which is they've been the Royal International Air Tattoo. And, you know, we all, all met up in uh, Paris um, last month. I think at the combat aircraft level stage, I would not expect, I, you know, I, sorry, I would expect European countries to... Uh, increasingly focus on next generation aircraft built indigenously but of course those aren't going to come onto the production lines for between sort of eight and eight and twelve years so in the meantime it's going to be carry on buying what you're buying already that is in the majority of european countries um cases is going to be f-35s but you know uh, for a smaller number it's going to be eurofighter typhoons and and rafale i think i mean you're absolutely right about um dasso i do wonder whether one of the reasons why the French loi de programmation has got fewer files. It's just that the French government are making more production slots available for exports, and we should come on to India um, in, in a minute or two. Um, I, I want to uh, move on uh, to uh, the Indian order, um, Indian Navy ordering uh, additional Rafales, uh, or I should say Indian Navy ordering Rafales, uh, and three uh, new Scorpion submarines, which would be very good uh, for French defense. Uh, Richard, start us off on the Rafale discussion, and then Sash, uh, kind of give us your spe- uh, sense on the Scorpion deal and both of those. Go ahead, Richard. You know, it sure looks like an order. Uh, no guarantees in life. Um, you know, it, they've, the press release says that they've selected it. Uh, but I think the general knowledge was that the Indian Navy was moving towards the Rafale for reasons of commonality, for reasons of, well, the Rafale being a really good plane, uh, for reasons of not being quite ready to commit to a U.S. combat aircraft just yet. They never have before. Um, certainly in ABORS, but not combat aircraft. Um, having said that, you know, DESO does have a history, perhaps, of slightly jumping the gun. They'd put out a press release last year saying that Indonesia, where I am now, had purchased 42 Rafales. It transpires they've actually purchased six with plans to buy additional ones in incremental packages, maybe, you know, dependent upon the budget, of course. 
but focusing again on the positive, you know, it's a really big win. Of course, it's the first export order for a carrier, Rafael. Um, it helps Indo India move past the fundamental problem that they faced, you know, 10 years ago, where they couldn't actually place the large block order they wanted of Rafael's without getting Indian production in the form of Hindustan aeronautics involved. They didn't want that, ironically. They didn't want that in India. The French certainly didn't want it. So how to get around it? Well, you just order, you know, 36 for the Air Force, then 26 for the Navy, then another 36 for the Air Force, and so on and so forth, till you have all 150 or however many fighters you ultimately wanted. So I think the long-term potential is fantastic. And yes, it looks like they can circumvent the requirement of having Hindustan aeronautics involved in co-production. So all in, you know, I think it's a, it's a win for Indian air power it's, and, and naval power. And of course, most of them all win for Deso. Sash? Yeah, I, I don't have a, a lot to add to that. I think um, Richard's um, analysis, though, of the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the desire not to involve Hindustan aeronautics in it, which at the very least is a, is a very, very bureaucratic organization, um, hits the nail on the head. Deso has actually gone out of their way to establish a um, a relationship with Reliance Industries, and they have a, um, a business called uh, Dassault Reliance uh, Aerospace Limited, which does subcontracting for various Dassault aircraft. And I think, you know, there, there's always been a, probably understanding is to, is to, you know, there's been this aspiration that the, the DRAL might ultimately um, do something slightly bigger on, on Rafale if the orders come in at the right scale. But, you know, if you're only ordering a couple of doves on aircraft, licenses, even, you know, uh, assembly work does not make any uh, economic sense. Um, and so you know, the Indians, on the one hand, have this make in India policy, which is about as prescriptive and, um, uh, and it's a very, very tough policy indeed. But then they undermine themselves um, with purchases like this because there's no way it can be enforced. Uh, and I think that's uh, you know, that, that, that marks uh, this big gap between the political ambition and the economic and military realities. And a quick reminder for our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and uh, our air power podcast, sponsored by GE Aerospace, that I co host with our very own. JJ Gertler. Um, not a lot of commercial aviation news, so I think we can go uh, for the three of us who are here at the Royal International Air Tattoo. I spent two days also, or a day and a half, at uh, uh, the uh, Royal Air Force's Chief of Air Staff's Global Air and Space Chiefs Conference uh, in uh, London, which was absolutely uh, fascinating, uh, reinforcing the sense that uh, Sir Rich uh, Knighton uh, the chief of uh, Air Chief Marshal, Sir uh, Richard uh, Knighton, is the right guy at the right time uh, for this job. The first engineer uh, and non-aviator uh, who's um, held uh, the job of chief of air staff. But I want to first go and and uh, get uh, a sense, uh, you know, and 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 Sash maybe uh, start us off, or or actually in this case, Ron start us off. Right, this is the first time you were at Riyadh. Kind of your impressions and what your kind of key takeaways were. Uh, from you know your your day out in uh, a blustery uh, RAF Fairford. Yeah, I mean from 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 my point of view, like you mentioned, I hadn't been there before. Um, you know, I, I found it a uh, kind of a refreshing show. 
a little more intimate than the big air shows in Farnborough and Paris, maybe other places. Um, a nice focus uh, on Europe, and I think timely, right, just after the the, the big NATO summit. So, yeah, probably probably my bigger takeaways is that there's there's a lot of military business going on um, in the NATO community. There were a lot of advertisements uh, for unmanned collaborative combat aircraft from various manufacturers. So clearly, clearly there's a focus on that. You know, we had some interesting discussions, you know, some planned, some unplanned with, you know, various members of, uh, of the community. But, you know, you know, largely I'm walking away from, you know, the show with, with a view on uh, maybe you know, the international defense market where some of the U.S. defense contractors might fit into that market and maybe how robust that market, particularly you know, in the European theater or in the European orbit, um, is, has become, and continues to be. Uh, and you figure most U.S. defense contractors, on average, maybe 25 to 30% of their sales are international. Uh, that it's, it's something not to be ignored and uh, yet could be another area of growth for U.S. defense contractors. Um, so it's not just all about um, you know, projecting force in the Pacific, um, but, but there's a lot going on in Europe and it looks like we'll continue to do so for a number of years. Sash, your takeaways, you spend a lot of time walking around talking to a lot of folks as well. Yeah, um, I mean, I, 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 I've got to say my standout, my standout air, aircraft for the show is Saab's Globalize uh, Airborne Early Warning and Control aircraft. I've never actually seen it in the flesh. I've, you know, we've seen the previous generation Eyes, which is a, um, a very, very odd mating of this uh, long phased array um, uh, ESA radar on top of an old Saab 340 turboprop. And I mean, you're, you're never sure whether the, the radar is going to crush the turboprop or not because it's just so big. Arii is just massive. Oh, sorry, Globalize is just massive by comparison. The radar is uh, appears to be a bit bigger, but it's on a, a Bombardier Global Express jet. And when you look at that aircraft, uh, and this is a um, an aircraft destined for the launch customer, the United Arab Emirates, it is bristling. Uh, we are covered with antennas of different sorts, um, uh, air-to-surface radars. Uh, there's a new electronic warfare, or what we think is an electronic warfare system, uh, in sort of cheek um, uh, arrays just behind the uh, the cockpit doors. Um, a, a very very com- comprehensive EW um, uh, system out on on the wings as well, and it just looks a, a, a very impressive system. I think it's going to give Boeing's E7 wedge tail a run for its money because it will probably be cheaper. They are certainly down the learning curve because the, the aircraft we saw was aircraft number four. Um, they've got another one for the UAE to, uh, to go and then um, uh, at probably four for, for Sweden and, and and more beyond that. I think this is you know, really, really good to see it finally uh, you know, in, in the metal at an air show. Um, purely from a uh, sort of emotional point of view, seeing a combined uh, flying display by a Spanish AV-8B Harrier uh, and a Royal Air Force F-35. So effectively spanning two generations of uh, A-Stovall uh, flight and operations by neighbors was was very, very impressive indeed. And what a great example of, of cooperation to be able to put two different aircraft, two different forces uh, together, and they laid on an excellent display. But I could, you know, I could go on. There was some, there's been some terrific aircraft to see and some, some really good flying displays, and you just learn a lot at shows like this. Um, you know, uh, Richard, your um, view on 
whether or not Erie, I, the, the Swedes have a tendency of producing great products. The challenge is when the United States is selling it, it has sort of the backing of the US government. Um, and, and so that gives you opportunities and a lot of debate and discussion with the future of uh, Sweden's uh, indigenous uh, companies, specifically, and most importantly, perhaps Saab, you know, whether joining NATO is a good thing or whether it's a death uh, sentence. From your standpoint, does Erie have a good shot against the wedge tail or does the wedge tail have a bulk advantage at this point? You know, what, whatever the attributes of it, because really the Erie, uh, excuse me, the global eye is a combination of rivet joint, you know, E3, as well as, you know, joint stars capabilities, right? I mean, it's an unusual mix of capabilities that's actually pretty unique and why it's so impressive for everybody who sees it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a, always been a pretty impressive design. Of course, it's been through several incarnations, URI, then uh, MRSS, and, and the type specified by the UAE. And uh, certainly the idea of an airborne early warning platform that uses a high-end business jet like the uh, the Israeli product that was produced with Gulfstream for the Italians back a few years ago, it's always been a really good idea. Um, but nevertheless, the high-end market still prefers an integrated airborne battle management capability along with the sensors. And that, of course, has given Wedgetail a, a very big advantage in crucial markets like Turkey, South Korea, Australia, Britain, wherever else. Um, that's not going to change. So you've got this sort of weird paradox. You've got this tremendous value-oriented capability. Um, is there a metal market? Is there people who don't want that high-end uh, AWACS equivalent, um, and yet are willing to still spend, you know, 150, 200 million, whatever it takes, probably 200, maybe even more per aircraft. And there aren't too many countries like that, unfortunately. Um, it, you know, sort of that that middle market barely exists. You, you have, a you know, the, the small number of countries at the top, a bunch of folks who are willing to put a you know a basic surveillance radar in a in an Islander defender and call it a day, um, and then there's that middle. So big challenges. As for NATO membership, it certainly helps, right? I mean, that's always been a key selling point for anybody with special mission aircraft. That kind of you know integration into broader upgrade roadmaps and uh, doctrinal um, pathways that that certainly Boeing has enjoyed. So I think it's probably good news for them. Um, you can wish them the best, hope that middle market keeps emerging, but uh, so far not a lot of evidence that it uh, that it's particularly large. Um, one of the highlights of the show was that Airbus uh, has been, uh, has an extraordinary historical flight collection. Uh, they worked on uh, a replica, building a replica of uh, the world's first operational jet fighter, the Messerschmitt uh, 262, uh, and uh, they did it. And we had a, a great opportunity to talk to K-12, the legendary Swiss uh, test pilot uh, who flies uh, the airplane. Obviously, it doesn't have the old Junkers, Jumo engines. Uh, in him, uh, and it was uh, terrific. And we're going to have an interview uh, with him uh, and uh, the historical flight team on the air power uh, report. But Ron, you're the PhD aerodynamicist here, right? It's so many interesting features about that airplane, right? That were totally groundbreaking. B what was it like? And, you know, what were you thinking as you were looking at what was, you know, at the time an airplane that was like 150 miles an hour faster than any, you know, even the the best uh, you know, allied airplane it was going up against. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe from a, a uh, how do I frame this? From a, a point of view of uh, evolution, you, you look at the airplane and it's sort of like the missing link, right? Because there's aspects of it that are, you know, clearly, you know, forward looking, you know, revolutionary jet engines, uh, a, a swept back wing. However, that swept back wing is of an airfoil type that you'd find on a non-jet airplane that's flying slower. Um, you know, the, as we were told, and you, it, it, you can kind of make sense of it when you look at the airplane, the, the layout of the tail uh, from a control authority point of view isn't probably what you'd want to do on an airplane like that, unless you had um, some pretty advanced computers and uh, flight control systems, which clearly at the time they didn't. So it, it, it's a fascinating machine because there's aspects of it that are, you know, you know, clearly the next step, but there's also aspects of it that are kind of from, from the time. Um, so you're kind of looking at it. You just, I was really astonished at, and I didn't appreciate it. I've never really walked up to one and you know, seen it up close and personal, uh, but the airfoil cross sections, how the wing is laid out, the L is laid out and so on and so forth. So yeah, it really was a treat to be able to kind of go up and see it in a sense it was a little bit like jurassic park maybe i don't know maybe i'm being overly dramatic <laughs> but but it was really really kind of cool um it's it's amazing that you know the all the seams um b- uh, between the fuselage panels are taped with linen and right painted over because they wanted to make it as smooth as as they they could in terms of the surface and obviously right it has four the operational airplane had four uh, 30 millimeter cannons in the nose so you know it's not carrying hundreds of pounds of ammunition so they did you know the engines are much smaller even though they uh, produce the same power um so they had to you know do ballasting but I, I thought it was fascinating sash you know your your sense you know in terms of also uh, the care with which they did this to avoid right i mean after all it was a product of the third reich made at the you know but at the height of World War II, right? I mean, so they they tr- tried to treat that subject with a little bit of delicacy as well. You know, the choice of a Swiss test pilot, uh, for example, to be the 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 the, the chief uh, pilot of uh, of the airplane. Yeah, and also I think the fact that the um, the entire paint scheme, although clearly representative of um, uh, you know late 1944-1945 paint schemes. It does not represent a single known op- a picture or operational squadron. So it's representative of the time, but it, it certainly is not a, a copy of a, of, of, of a known squadron. You know, Airbus, I think, understandably, have to be incredibly sensitive about that, this. And I think they are doing a really, really good job. The thing that my, my um, takeaway actually was actually relates to those 30 um, millimeter cannon at the front of the aircraft. This was an aircraft that was clearly designed to be turned around and you know bombed up with ammunition pretty quickly so that at the front in the nose um and it's a it's a lovely piece of design anyway but there are two huge hatches that that lift up i mean almost like the you know the gold wing doors of a tesla or something and makes rearming much much easier in that space than than uh, i think you see in in quite a lot of other aircraft i think i thought a lot of uh work went into uh, into the, the the rearming process. Those hatches were an enormous part of the, of that particular uh, fuselage cross section. I really like that. Um, and I have to say, you know, I look forward to listening to your interview with K twelve. It sounds an absolute pig to fly. 
yes, uh, you know, and astonishingly short range, um, and you know, a, a very difficult airplane to fly uh, as well. And we're going to hear uh, a little bit about that next week, guys. Thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, it's been lovely uh, seeing you guys here. Uh, hope everybody has a safe uh, journey uh, home. Uh, and thanks uh, so very much uh, to you guys for making the time for us, uh, including you, Richard, uh, given that you're uh, seven hours ahead of where we are. Always a pleasure, Vago, particularly in Gloucestershire. Yeah, it's uh, great to see uh, you, Vago, and, and Ron, as I said, Richard, next year. And because we have to have one piece of civil news for this, this show, I think the fact that both uh, Vago and Ron seem to be having uh, problems with United. Uh, I, I I feel for you in that. Um, well done, United. Not. Yes, agree completely. Condolences, and uh, hope you get home soon. And uh, well, great to be on the show. Um, yes, uh, and so uh, we we are recording this early before we all leave uh, on on Sunday to return to the states, and we're having uh, some uh, challenges. Uh, and I hope ultimately nothing uh, is serious. Uh, and also a very special thanks to our mutual friend, Nick Cunningham, who does such a terrific job hosting us here. Uh, he is one of the finest minds uh, in this business and also a dear friend to us all. And Nick, thanks very much for putting up with all of us and being such a magnificent uh, host. And thanks very much to all of you for joining us. And a very special thanks for Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Looking forward to having all of you join us. Tomorrow, when we talk to Sam Bendet and Byron Callen, thanks very much and have a great day.